we're navigating this little mini-series on the names of God. And uh, this week, uh, I selected these uh, ones. We all chose, the speakers chose their own ones, and I chose Jehovah Shalom. And uh, some of you will know the term Shalom, uh, which means peace. Uh, so, or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. But I think, as when I've done these other ones, it's quite important to try and navigate the origins of these names so we don't just go into fluffy ideas about peace. We actually uncover what this really means. Like when I talked about Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, actually the ultimate provision of God is Christ, not, not a sports car. Disappointing, no, that is. The more you love God, you don't accumulate more stuff. The more you love your saviour and realise that the ultimate provision of God is Christ. In the same way, the, uh, the roots of Jehovah Shalom are quite intriguing. Um, and we need to go back to the time of the judges in the Bible. Now, in your Old Testament, for those of you that are new to this, uh, towards the beginning, you'll see a book called Judges. And the judges were... Uh, a mix of military leaders, politicians, people with wisdom, and people like Chuck Norris. So it was a real mix of like, you know, bare knuckle bruisers and people with wisdom. And, and God would raise them up, a particular sort of judge, they'd be raised up for the need at the time. And it was what we call a very sort of cyclical time back in the period of Judges, where the people would love God and God would raise up, you know, a good leader and there would be peace and prosperity and everyone would love each other. It would be like Little House on the Prairie. And then they would all lose their faith and it would be a nightmare. They would forget the Lord their God and they would go to their own understanding, their own ways and everything would be carnage and then God would raise up a judge that was appropriate for the job to bring them back. And then there'd be peace and prosperity, little house on the prairie. And then it would all go wrong again. And then it would all fall into despair. And then God would raise up a judge again. So that's the book of Judges. It's a very fascinating book. If, you, if you're into sort of thrillers and, and A-team stuff, and, uh, you know, it's like a mix of, like, Bruce Lee, A-team, and... Uh, Michael Crichton and Stephen King all rolled into one. That's the book of Judges. If you're new to the Bible, it's terror, it's horror, it's politics, it's everything. Um, I try and describe the Bible to people. People say, why do you read the Bible? Well, it's like an action novel, a murder thriller, political assassinations, and loads of peace and love. What more could you want out of a book? It's got everything in it. So Gideon is where this uh, name... Uh, is birthed really, and Gideon is famous for the account of the fleece. And many Christians over the years say things like, I'm going to lay out a fleece. You've heard that expression? Yes, well, it comes from, if you haven't, you will do, once you've been hanging around in the church for about two and a half days, you'll hear the term, I'm going to put out a fleece. And it was all about Gideon laying out a fleece to see if it would uh, have dew on it, get damp or not, and he was testing whether God was speaking to him. We're actually not going to show that part of the story because Gideon 
was famous for something else, and I think he was a pioneer of the SAS raiding party. In fact, in World War II, there was a force called the Gideon Force, which was named after Gideon, and they were small, like the, the forerunners of a long-range desert group operating behind enemy lines in East Africa. Because Gideon, at one point, goes into battle against the odds, which we're going to look at as we navigate the origins of the name uh, Jehovah Shalom. But we pick up the story here in Judges chapter 6. So, you know, go towards the front of your Bibles, and a couple of hundred pages in, you'll find Judges, or just use the contents page if you're not used to it. So, the story is around 1100 BC. I think that's quite a long time ago. And in 1100 BC, just so you've got a bit of context here, because I like this kind of thing, so you have to suffer it, the Bronze Age is coming to an end in Greece. In fact, Greece is about to go into the Dark Ages. Cadiz was founded in Spain. It's still 300 years to go before the first Olympic Games. Can you believe that? So this is a long time ago. The ancient form of alphabet was just beginning to emerge into Europe. And in here, in here, here in Britain, the first hill forts were just appearing. In fact, in Grimthorpe, just up into Yorkshire sort of way. So it's, it, the hill forts were emerging because people started to fight each other as population increased. So in other words, this is a very, very long time ago. And in Israel, this is ancient times. And in Israel, after years and years and years of peace, suddenly they started to move away from God again. And everything went wrong. So at this time that we pick up this story, the Israelites were massively under pressure. The Midianites are raiding them. In fact, the coalition was just about to form against them. They were literally building shelters, hiding in caves. They were in fear of their lives every day. Everything was going completely pear-shaped. Their farms are being raided. Their crops are being destroyed. So it's at that point here we're going to pick up the story of Gideon, and I have got a chunk of the Bible to read to you, but that's because I need to do it. You need to understand the background, and I don't think there's anything wrong with reading a big chunk of the Bible, do you? That's probably a good thing. So let's, let's look at this from Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded their country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. We'll just pause it there. We read the Bible sometimes and we just move on. This is basically a time of terror. People are scared, they're hungry, they're under threat, there's no security. It's a bit like we're meeting huddled in here, but we know that down the road in Mansfield there's an army camped and they're going to raid us. And they're going to destroy our homes and take off some of our people and take all our food supply. It's just a terrifying, awful time and the people were living in fear, but they cry to the Lord for help. And isn't it so true that often we cry to the Lord for help when the chips are down? When everything's going wrong, suddenly there's a God. It's amazing that. Suddenly we pray. I've had people say to me, 
The only thing we can do now is pray when one of their relatives is about to die and that's coming out of the mouths of a rampant atheist. It's funny how consistent atheism often just goes in the face of extreme pressure. And I think this, this thing in us wells up to seeking to want deliverance and want to know more, to believe that there is a God who's for us and God in his infinite patience and love always answers that prayer. But it must be so tiresome, right? You only call on me when you need me. And the rest of the time you don't. It must be really hard. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. I like that. The angel of the Lord just came and sat down under a tree. That'd be so cool if that happened, wouldn't it? Just like an angel just coming and having a little chat. But it doesn't go like that. It says this. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family. Isn't it so true that often those who are the least in the eyes of the world are the people that God can use? Those with a humble heart. Those who don't think they're all that. But they're just willing to serve the Lord. I've got this phrase on my Twitter account, actually, which says, there is no limit to what a man can do, or woman, or where he or she can go, if they're not bothered about who gets the credit. This is an old Reagan, Ronald Reagan quote, used to have it above his desk. But isn't it so true that the people who think they're not all that, they're the people that can change the world, actually? Go in the strength you had, God said. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, If now I've found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. And Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephra of flour he made bread without yeast, and putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he put them out and offered them to him to drink. And the angel, of the, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, 
Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is peace. And to this day, it stands. That is the origin of Jehovah Shalom. A man who is about to be sent into battle against massive, overwhelming odds. Because if you read the story going forward, ultimately, this is a story of a a leader who doesn't think he's all that. He's the weakest of his clan. His clan is the weakest. And he's about to go into battle, ultimately, with 300 men outnumbered 400 or 450 to 1. He's facing about 120,000 enemy soldiers. And he leads 300 men into battle. That's the origin of this story, the Lord is peace. It was the first SAS raid. If you read it, they win, and it's a remarkable strategy. It's a small unit against overwhelming odds. Actually, about 600 years later, the same thing would happen in Thermopylae, uh, which is no, the Spartan Empire, which the film 300 is based on. But this was the original account of the first 300 against overwhelming odds. And when we say Jehovah Shalom, and we say Shalom means peace, we often think of warm, fluffy feelings. But when God uses the term, it's actually like this. You're going to go into battle and it's going to be scary. But be at peace because I'm with you and you're not going to die. So you can step out. That's when Jehovah Shalom is used in this context. And we can't just warp the concept of biblical peace to make it about feeling warm and fluffy. Little house in the prairie. Because actually, biblically, that is not the case. It means that the Lord God, the Almighty God, is with you. Always with you. And yes, shalom, the word went on to mean wholeness and peace in every respect. But biblically, this is about knowing that God is with you, often biblically, in the face of massively overwhelming pressure. So, Acts 18, 9, you'll see references like this, where Paul is preaching, and the angel of the Lord appears to Paul and says, do not be afraid, I'm with you. Keep on speaking, and he's massively under threat of persecution and death. Matthew 28, when Jesus tells us to go, and lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. But very, as soon as they, the early church went out and went and go, they did the go thing, they faced massive pressure, didn't they? And I can remember, I was thinking about this while I was sitting on my sofa uh, uh, this morning, just pondering on these things, and the memory came back to me. In fact, I mentioned it to Karen last night. And uh, when I first got called into a ministry context, and some of you all know I was doing the yuppie thing. I was earning a few quid in the banking world and ducking and diving a bit and trying to track my way to my first million. And uh, that was the big dream. And then God called us. 
and we stepped out just before I landed the big job to kill all jobs off. And uh, it's a, a longer story, but basically we stepped out and, and I knew I wasn't going to get paid to plant this church in my, in my 20s. And I remember the time the, 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 the bank doors closed behind me for the last time and I looked back and everyone was waving goodbye at me. Like, see you, BG. I remember getting on the tube train, suddenly being swamped by feelings of, still got a mortgage. Got a wife. Want kids. I've got bills to pay. But I know that God's called me. In. And we, we stepped into this adventure of church planting. And so I was going to college twice a week. I was driving from... Uh, Essex to South Norwood to go to Spurgeon's College on a Wednesday and Thursday, get up, crack a dawn, drive to college, do lectures all day on Old Testament theology and things I didn't understand. And, and then I'd go back in the evening and lead a home group or run an alpha course. And then I'd get up the next day and do college again. And then I'd come back and I'd be working sort of Monday through to Sunday, but two of those days out of college and stuff in the evening and not earning a shilling at all. Just it was really tough, and so what you might what little savings had just dwindling, and we moved on to the council estate, and we felt massively under pressure. Like this was this was us living on the edge more than we'd you know ever contemplating doing, and it got to a point where you're thinking, well, yeah, maybe I could do a little bit of consultancy work, do a little bit of sales on the side, you know, maybe I could sell a few used cars. I reckon I could do that, and uh, you know that sort of thing. And then we went to this church. It was a New Frontiers church, which I've been tasked to assess. It was a new church plant as part of my college work. And me and Karen were sitting there, and it was a highly prophetic, charismatic atmosphere where everyone was getting words from the Lord and stuff. Then they did this bit, where, which we, we'd not done here, where they went, right, everyone just stand still, and, and like the prophets in the church are going to walk up and down. So imagine now, like you're all standing there, and then I'm walking up going... I think I've got a word for you. You know, it's like massively, might have actually, no, I'm joking. And then uh, it's like massively intimidating. So this person's like, they're walking up and then this person just stopped where me and Karen were sitting. Went like this. Now they didn't have a clue who we were. They're just looking at me. I'm thinking, what are you looking at me for? You know, that used to happen to a pub in Wantford. They're going, head bum. The way you just staring at me, it's really intimidating. And then they said, the Lord wants to say to you, that what you are doing is right. And you should just do what you are doing. It's right. Keep going. The path you've taken is the Lord is with you. It's going to be all right. And I remember I just stand there going, <laughs> it was like partly, oh, it's the word of the Lord. And the other part of me was like, but I think oh, I want to earn a few quid. <laughs> you know? like, I don't. And then, but it was this amazing thing because Karen and I were like walking on clouds. The rest of that week, we're like, God has spoken to us. And we had at that moment, Shalom. We did. We, we had shalom. Now, I just want to explain how this works. Because it would be remiss of me not to mention how we secure our peace. And we are not in Gideon's time. 
we are post-Jesus Christ on the cross, post-resurrection. We live now in the time of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And if you're in my discipleship group, I'm going to be looking at that tonight at my place. I forgot to mention it earlier, but that's what we're going to be looking at. And there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 53, which explains the cross 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. 700 years. A man called Isaiah wrote a phenomenally accurate description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. If you ever were to doubt this book, this book is full of stunning things like that. So let me read this to you. This is a description of Jesus on the cross. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. This is Jesus taking the punishment we deserve for sin. Nailed to a cross, the description 700 years before it happened. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isn't that true? We all do our own thing. I, do you know what? The, the root of sin is actually, I want to do what I want. I will do what pleases me. That is the root of so much conflict, war, aggravation, rousing Morrison's car park. It's, that is the origin. I want to do what I want, what pleases me. From the Morrison's car park route to nations invading each other. It's self-centeredness. We all want to do our own thing. We're like sheep that have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the iniquity of nations, the iniquity of individuals. All born by Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears his silence, so he didn't open his mouth. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 12. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus praying for us even now. But the punishment that brought us peace was on him. All that stuff that we carry, all that grief, all that self-centeredness, all the things that wound us and injure us, all the things that we inflict upon ourselves, born by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how you can have shalom today. And I often say to people, when I'm talking to people about Jesus, and I'm trying to explain it to them, I say you just need the peace that only Jesus can give you. I've seen people on their deathbeds receive Jesus Christ and look like they're at peace. I have. I've seen people in their facing death in the face they're hours away from dying. I've led them to Christ and I've seen the peace that surpasses all understanding. I was with a young man once in, in critical care because he'd had an accident in the Birmingham snow dome and they cut the front portions of his skull out because his brain was expanding through it. He was on the edge of death. There was an emergency call out as a pastor some years ago and I met his family in the room next to intensive care and they'd just been told that their son was going to die within hours that he needed to turn all the life support off. You imagine how that would feel. 
That is your worst nightmare. It doesn't, I mean, there's not much that gets worse than that. And I remember them kneeling with me on the floor in this little tiny room in this hospital. And they were sobbing their hearts out. And the dad said, he said, I give my son to you, God. It's yours. It was never truly mine. It belongs to you, God. I give my son to you. And he looked up at me and he actually smiled at me. And he said, I now know what the peace is that surpasses all understanding. And that boy is now married. He's a man and he's married and he came through and turned around during that afternoon, gave his son to Christ and God just did his work and a beautiful thing happened. But sometimes it don't work like that. Sometimes it doesn't work out like that. Sometimes bad stuff happens because life is run on twin tracks. Rick Warren said this. He's faced incredible tragedy. Life isn't about seasons of peace and seasons of turmoil. Actually, life is often twin tracks. We have the peace, but at the same time, we have the carnage. We like what I was saying earlier. But the peace that surpasses all understanding, that's a different thing. That is much deeper. And through Christ, we can have that. Ultimately, it means it is well with your soul. If you've received Christ here, it means that you have a destiny. It means that he's with you. It means that your kids can be kicking off. It means you've had a row with your husband or wife or there's family issues or you're facing financial pressure, but you can access the peace that only Christ can give you and you'll find a way through. You will. That's the peace that only Jesus Christ can give. Through bloodshed on the cross, the Bible tells us. It means that if you're in Christ today, you have a destiny, you're God's child, and Christly it means his spirit's in you. And that changes everything, in my experience. Didn't mean to say that you're wafting around on a cloud all the time, like a weirdo. I don't think that happens. I don't think it means you've got this weird sort of Stepford Wife program grin on your face. I don't think it means that. But I think it means that there's something deeper has gone on. It's well with my soul. A beautiful song, isn't there? It's well with my soul. I, Horatio Gates Spafford, who lost his wife and his daughters in a tragedy and went on to write that song, it's well with my soul, despite all the tragedy. That's shalom, actually. That's shalom. I could face the death of my closest. I could face financial ruin. I got work pressure all over the place. But it's well with my soul. That's how you access peace. And that's our shalom. doesn't mean we're spared pain. So practically, what does this mean? Because uh, I always like to do that. I always like to think, what does this mean? If we have shalom, how can we apply it? What does that mean in my daily life? What does that mean when it is all kicking off? I've had loads of moments this week where it's all kicked off. And they're always the way. You're going to preach on a subject like Shalom, and I've had one of the most unpeace-filled weeks since 1994. How does that even work? Because I keep a record. How does, that, how does that work? I've had conflicts and carnage and failed meetings and massive diary pressure, and I'm preaching on Shalom. What a nightmare. So I've got to look at what does that practically mean. Well, I think... Going by the basis of the Gideon narrative, where it all kicks off and where the word shalom, Jehovah shalom, originates from, I think it means this, and it might not mean what you think it would mean when we talk about being peaceful. 
I don't think it's like having a cup of tea and fruitcake watching the Antiques Roadshow. That does make me feel quite peaceful, actually. I kind of like that programme when it's on. It makes me feel like everything's fluffy and lovely. But that's not what it means. I think it means that we can step out and take godly risks. I think it means we can do a Gideon impression. I do. And a, a, a small army outnumbered, facing overwhelming odds. That's when you need God to say, be at peace, you're not going to die. That's when you need shalom. And I think for us it means we can step out and take godly risks. And I'll tell you what, I've learned and Karen and I have learned the more that we step out and take godly risks, not like weird risks, like I'm going to put £2,000 on David Hay to not wash his face out. That's just that's gambling. Godly risks where you don't see the outcome. You've not, you, you've not seen the end of the story, but you know that God is calling you. I think we can take those risks uh, when we have shalom. But I would say that Karen and I have learned that we experience the presence of God more in those moments than at any other time. We hear his voice and we've experienced his uh, presence more when we've stepped out and lived on the edge than at any other time in our lives because we needed it and the Lord knew that we needed it. And it's horses for courses. It's, it's different levels of faith for different people. We're all at different stages in our journey with God. But the more we step out of our comfort zone, I guarantee you, the more you'll experience is shalom. Second thing I've realised is I think it means that we can overcome our fears. I imagine, I mean, I like, I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I'm picking up from Gideon's response to the angel. And then if you read on the fleece thing, that he might have felt a little bit insecure. Especially when his army has been whittled down from tens of thousands to 10,000, then from 10,000 to 300. That's a bit of a nightmare. If you read the story, you think, it's all right. They've got 120,000, 50,000, 60,000. God says, and take 300. You're like, really? That's when you need to lay out a fleece. Not lay out a fleece like, do I go to Meadow Hall or not? That is not an appropriate use of fleece doom, I don't think. But I do think it means that we can overcome our fears. I don't think fears are necessarily from heaven. And I think that we have an enemy that uses fears to paralyze and numb and blunt his people. You know, I, I know we all have little tinsy wincy little fears. I, mine is being eaten by a shark. I don't know what yours is, uh, but I'd hate to go like that. Um, some people it's buttons. My mum doesn't like buttons. Or, I don't know why, never understood it. Or, like, you know, dried apricots or worms. But I think fears can generally be overcome. It means that in the big picture fears, we can step out if we know that the Lord our God is with us. The creator of the universe is on our side. I think you're going to be all right. Especially when we know that when we die, we're going to be all right. Because that's true, you know. Like, you're all going to die. Happy Sunday. You're going to die. But if you're in Christ, you're going to be all right. That's the truth. What's the worst that can happen to you? The Bible tells us, don't, 
Don't fear one that can kill the body. Fear, fear the one who's got your body and your soul in his hands. Well, that's the living God. If you're with the living God, don't worry about it. You're going to be all right. I did this military weekend recently for a bunch of serving uh, officers and stuff from around the world. at Shrivenham at the Defence Academy. And this guy who came over to me, he's been all over the world doing military-type things. And he said, I've discovered in life... I mean, this someone you listen to is like the equivalent of a colonel. He said, I've discovered that you only ever need 10 seconds of courage. If you think about that, that's probably true. I mean, in him, it's like charging machine gun nests, I suppose. Uh, but it's like, you've got to take a deep breath for 10 seconds and get 10 seconds of steel in your backbone and in your heart. And then when you're in it, you're in it. You might need 10 seconds again and 10 seconds again and 10 seconds again, but... You only need 10 seconds of courage. I imagine that Gideon felt quite insecure. But once you get going, you get going. It's just a little sideline tip. I believe it means, number four, that we can access the peace of God at any time. And, and, and I think the more that you read this and the more you pray and the more you fill your head and heart with worship and the more you surround yourself with godly people and the more you practice living out your faith, the more you're able to access shalom actually now it means that sometimes for me when it's all spinning out of control and i'm spinning plates and i can see one's about to crash to the floor and i'm picking up on a disaster i've got to deal with sometimes i i do have to literally take myself away even if it's just a couple of minutes and i just spend a bit of time praying i mean it's a full-on job like many of you but you can still find that space just to just to pray Remember, the Lord my God is with me. Maybe read a little snippet of scripture or something like that. But I believe that we can access peace at any time, no matter what, no matter where we are. I think it means practically looking at Gideon. I think it means ultimately we, we are people who don't keep saying, but what if this and what if that, when we're about to embark on a great God adventure. If we have shalom if we have the peace, wholeness and fulfillment of Christ and the presence of his spirit in us, I think it means we are the people that say, and why not? Let's have a go. Nothing ever happened to someone who didn't have a go. Let's have a go. Let's give it a good crack because the living God's with us. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, I'm not talking about being bonkers. Like, as a church, we think, let's buy... 10 acres in Barbados. That's just stupid. Like we wouldn't do that. No, it's quite nice. We wouldn't do it. But if it's like, should we take this leap of faith for Jesus? Should we have a go at doing this for Jesus? I think we're the people of the why not, not the what if. I think what if is something that I never see Jesus sort of saying as he navigates towards the cross and the resurrection. It's like, do my father's will. So we are the people of the why not. Let's give it a go. I think point six is that the shalom of God, God's peace, Jehovah's shalom, leads to create courageous living and not defeatist living, actually. And what I've noticed is that many people live with all the reasons why they can't do something. Let's live with the reasons why we can do something. And the ultimate reason we can do something is because the peace of God is with us. What if Gideon had never gone into battle? What if Jesus had never gone to the cross? 
There's that moment in Gethsemane in the New Testament where Jesus is kneeling and he could have said no. He had to be able to say no to the cross. But he didn't say, I'll do the will of my Father. And he went for it. I think we are people with God's peace living courageous lives. Very often people say no to God for fears of what might be and still small doubts soon become massive objections. Build them up in our heads. It doesn't have to be like that. I think this might be a little bit my sense of what God is saying for us as a church here. I did wonder as I was reading the passage whether we're going to have our own 300 challenge as a church. A small force trying to do something overwhelmingly big. And if you've been to one of our vision prayer nights, you know that we are dreaming big. And it might seem that it will be insurmountable for the number of people that we have. But if it's God's strategy, it will be all right. But we must stay in God's peace when that happens. That's just a little thing that I felt when I read on through the rest of the passage, which I'd encourage you to do. But we need to live possibilities and, and not problems. And finally, I just want to say this. Carriers of God's peace, people who dwell in the Spirit and the Spirit of God is with us, we are people who hopefully are looking to heaven and not down at the ground. Now, let me explain what I mean. It's something I said, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, I was once preaching the gospel at a big conference and I was trying to find an illustration and I started thinking about bullfighting. Uh, which is a bit weird when you're reading the Bible. And, and I looked it up, and I found out that I didn't realise this. I mean, I'm, I hate cruelty. I don't, I don't like it. This might surprise you. I'm a blokey bloke for ethics. But I don't like cruelty. I hate it. I don't like any form of cruelty. Christians sometimes use cruel language towards animals. I don't like it. You know, I, I think we should be very caring generous-hearted, compassionate people. and Cruelty winds me up. I find myself getting violent against cruelty. <laughs> anyway, so, how weird. So I was reading this thing about the bullfight, and I didn't realise that bullfighters, the matadors, stack the odds massively in their favour. It's not bull versus matador. It's bull almost cut to pieces versus matador. And they have these guys called banderillos who ride around the bull to tire it out for ages before the matador comes out. And then they stab the back of the bull with these little spears and they try to sever the muscles around the back of the neck. And so eventually, because of blood loss, normal exhaustion, and because the neck muscles are severed, uh, the bull's head is only faced down. You know, when you see them, they're like down. Well, it's a the technique they use to wound the bull well, it's beyond repair anyway. And then the matador comes out and does a few flourishes and sometimes he loses, but the odds are generally stacked in his favour and then he runs a sword through the back of the bull and seeks to kill it, just like that. And as I was reading up on this, I suddenly realised how, how many things in life are like those spears. They go into the back of our necks. And they rob our peace and they take our joy and they take our focus off heaven. There are many, many things like that. And they are different for different people. My, 
my buttons are like my kids. You know, like if if something bad is happening to my kids, it, like it robs my peace, like you wouldn't believe. And I might not outwardly show it, but inside I'm like, oh, and like so when my kids are suffering, my head starts going down to the ground. So I've had to learn to trust God with my kids. And or it might be work conflict that I, I hate unresolved conflict. I'm quite quick to pick up on conflict and deal with it. Partly because it's just my personality, but the other thing is I hate unresolved things bubbling around in the background. For me, it's a spear in my neck, and it wounds me, and I'm looking down at the ground. Things like money I don't really worry about too much because I learned to deal with years of desert experiences, and I don't worry about that sort of thing, and I, you know, I, don't, I don't really worry about difficult meetings. It's, things are unresolved in my family. I don't really worry about my health, to be honest. I think one day I'll walk along and the Lord will call me to heaven. I'll just plop down on the floor and that'll be it, hopefully. I don't really think about it that much. I don't, I don't go on Google checking up conditions because I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. Because you can have earache and come out of leukemia in 32 seconds. So I just don't advise it. So, you know, I don't worry about these things, but I have things that rob my peace that are spears in my neck and you will have yours. You will have yours. And it's at those times we need the shalom of God so that we look up to heaven. Because if you have overwhelming things stabbing you in the back of the neck and your gaze is down, you lose your joy. It robs your peace. You cannot be a let's do this person. It robs your faith. It stops you from stepping out. It stops you from trusting almighty God with your life. So we must identify those things, I think and systematically pray them through because I found that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is very good at spear removal, actually. And when we do seek God, it's funny how people intercept you and speak God's truth into your life and take those spears away. I, I, I share with you very personally that, that sometimes because my job has taken me away from my home a lot, and God spoke to us about that, to trust him in that, to Karen and I many years ago. It has felt for me a massive sacrifice. There are a lot of people who like being away. I don't like being away. I want to be at home cuddling my wife or eating a Domino's pizza. I don't want to be away, and yet the Lord has called me to do that. And because that's been horrible for me in that respect, there have been times when I've been washed over with insecurity about my kids and my, and my family. Like, oh, will they one day grow up? And when they're my age, look back and think their dad was never there. And do you know what I mean? It's a quiet thing. It's a thing that happens in the quietness when no one's watching. They're the things that rob your peace. You all have them. Those voices in the quiet. And I prayed and prayed and prayed about that. I pray for my girls and pray that it's going to be all right despite the sacrifice of being away all the time and you know all this stuff and the other day I'd, I'd literally been away again and it had been washing over me about one two o'clock in the morning these horrible feelings of insecurity about my family which is the spear the spear that my enemy uses against me really my sworn enemy <laughs> and then this guy the next day comes over to me and he said at work is this prophet guy, actually. 
but he's like, got his IT job. And he came up to me and he went, can I have two minutes of your time? I went, nope. <laughs> he went, I just need two minutes. I went, I'm really busy. I said, I need to book it in, mate. I'm literally back-to-back meetings all day. And he went, I just need two minutes. And he looked at me and I thought, oh, it sounded really chipped up and arrogant then. So I went, oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, come in, let's have a seat in my office. I'll just tell the other guys to wait a little bit. And he sat down and he said, it's weird, he said. He said, I was praying for you while you were out on the road. I went, oh, you, mate? And he went, yeah. And he said, I just felt this overwhelming feeling in the early hours of the, uh, uh, you know, that, that God wanted to say to you, you have been an all right dad. You've been a good dad to your girls. And don't, you're okay. Don't worry. And I went, it's all right, because I'm a bloke. I went, thanks, mate, yeah. Cheers, mate. Uh, it's really great. And he walked out and inside I'm going, <laughs> uh, spear removal for me. But he came out of seeking God's shalom and giving my insecurities and fears to the living God. We all have them. So I share mine so that you can deal with yours. You bring them before the Lord and he will grant you his shalom. I guarantee it. I hate that speaker. If we're with the Lord, I always never liked it since the day we got it. It means we can step out and take godly risks. You'll hear God's voice more. You can overcome your fears and phobias. I don't believe those fears are from heaven. You only need 10 seconds of courage. You can access God's peace at any time. We are the people of the what if, not the why. We're not the what if, we're the why not people. It means that we can have his peace, which leads to courageous living. I think we'll have our own challenge. Let's look at the possibilities, not the problems. And let's keep looking upwards. Keep looking up. Always keep looking up. Don't keep looking at your problems. Keep looking up. And you'll, you'll come through them in God's time.